Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. On today's podcast, we talk with Richard Gombrich about his new book, Buddhism in Pali, published by Mud Pie Slices. He puts the richness of the Pali language on display by introducing the reader to the origins of Pali, its linguistic character, and the style of Pali literature. Far more than just an introductory book, he argues not only that the Pali canon records the words of the Buddha, but that the Buddha himself is responsible for the Pali language. Richard convincingly shows that by learning about Pali, we learn about the spirit of Buddhism itself. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Richard, you've had an illustrious career as a scholar of Buddhism and Pali, and you've contributed much to the field over the course of your life. In the prologue of your new book, you talk about how you first came in contact with Buddhism and the Pali language. Could you share some of your story with us here? I went to a school, a very famous school in London called St. Paul's School, which was founded in the early 16th century, for children of all nations to be taught indifferently. That doesn't mean it was for them to be taught badly. It meant that there should be no prejudice between different uh, ethnic backgrounds or anything like that. And that's why my father sent me there. He strongly approved of that. And that school was a very old-fashioned British school where you specialized at a very early age, about 13. You really started specializing heavily. And specialized means that you'd spent a good three-quarters of your time at least on one particular subject area. And also very old-fashioned, they took the brightest pupils except occasionally for mathematicians. Otherwise, the brightest pupils were put under classics, which meant studying Latin and Greek. So I studied Latin and Greek while I was at that school, which was for nearly five years until I came to school-leaving age, at, uh, just under 18. Um, and so I did uh, Latin and Greek, which I learned in a very, very thorough, old-fashioned way. And there was one period in the week when you were allowed to study something with the approval of the, of the teacher in charge, any t- subject that you liked, really. You could read some book um, which was nothing to do with classics. That was your kind of intellectual holiday, and I took advantage of it at first to pick up a book which had attracted my eye in a library or bookshop, I don't remember which, which was a book on Hinduism. And I thought it was great fun to read, uh, I didn't take it very seriously in any way, but it was colorful and quite interesting. And so I got a little bit interested in Indian religion. Um, the religious background of my household was that my parents were um, agnostics. They would have said, I think, rather than atheists, but in practice, it's much the same thing. And uh The family background, going back a couple of generations, was Jewish, but they didn't practice Judaism at all, or indeed know or want to know anything about Judaism. Um, I had learned a bit about Christianity, inevitably, by going to a Christian school, in fact, a series of Christian schools. And I thought it was all quite interesting, but... um, I just couldn't understand how anybody could really believe this stuff, that is, believe the more serious parts of it. Uh, So uh, it was quite a relief to me, in a way, I think, to discover that there were people in large parts of the world who believed totally different things, maybe equally implausible, but at least quite different. (laughs) And gradually I developed a fascination which has never left me, Um, as a kind of anthropological fascination for the variety of beliefs that people have, many of them 
would strike me as totally preposterous. Um, they're very much in evidence wherever you look, especially, so we say, today with the absolutely crazy political views that people have over most of the world, for which they actually seem to believe that there is some justification. Um, and I remain basically very agnostic, uh, or even an atheist as far as God goes, but I do think that that doesn't mean that these things are uninteresting to study, but they're very interesting because they cause a lot of the trouble in the world and a few of the good things as well. And, of course, they tend to underpin or at least connect to people's ethics. And ethics, I do think, are very important. And then I came across, uh, when I was leaving school, I came across a book by E.A. Burt, uh, The Sayings of the Compassionate Buddha. He was an American scientist, and I thought that he, uh, the book was fascinating, and I discovered that the Buddha had what seemed to be very sensible and indeed profound ideas about ethics. So I was inclined to favor Buddhism in that very, very limited and ignorant way. I read some of his translations of Buddhist texts. And then when I left school, like every other boy of my age, or almost every other boy of my age in Britain at that time, I had two years of compulsory military service. And by pure chance, I was landed up in Hanover. Of course, there was no war at this time. This was in 1955. Um, late 1955, I ended up in Hanover, and my father had a friend there. My father was an art historian, and he was quite friendly, though he didn't know him very well, with the director of Hanover Art Gallery, who was a very pleasant, friendly man, and took me home to meet his family because he had a son and daughter who were just slightly younger than me. And the family were very nice to me. But I soon discovered that they were a little odd, being Germans in the middle of North Germany, because the wife, uh, under the stress of the Nazi government she'd had to live through, um, had become rather eccentric. And part of the eccentricity was that she be somehow became a Buddhist, I don't regard being a Buddhist as eccentric at all, but what was a bit eccentric was that she took so many of the cultural beliefs which tend to go with Buddhism, uh, like um, sort of belief in homeopathic medicine, astrology, you name it, all those kind, kinds of beliefs. And I wasn't favorably impressed by that. But I was impressed by learning more about Buddhism. She had some meetings in her house at weekends. And there were so few Buddhists in North Germany that for these little meetings, people traveled long distances to be present. And I learned much more about Buddhism at that time. Well, I didn't think at the time that it was going to really influence my life or play a large part in my life. But in fact, it did. because. When I went up to Oxford University, where I'd won a scholarship before having to enter the army, I, of course, was expected to go on with my Latin and Greek, and that's what I did for a year and a half. But there comes a point, according to the Oxford curriculum in these subjects, where you can choose whether to go on and study more about the ancient world, in particular the history and philosophy of, Latin, of the Greeks and the Romans, or switch to something quite different. And by that time, I had had, well, about seven years of Latin and Greek, and I was really rather bored with it. And so I decided I must do something else. And my first thought was to do China, because my father had, when he was an undergraduate, uh, privately, not as part of his official curriculum, studied Chinese a bit and found it very, very interesting. And he remained to his, the end of his days 
not an expert on anything Chinese, but very fond of Chinese art and rather interested generally in Chinese culture, nothing to do with their politics. So I thought of doing Chinese, but Mao Zedong had come in and ran everything in China, and indeed foreigners were not allowed to come to China to study the Chinese, however pure their credentials. So I thought that would not be a very good idea to have to study a subject uh, that is a, a culture, a people whom I was not even allowed to visit. So <laughs> somehow rather oddly, I moved over to India. Well, I say rather oddly, but that's not quite the case because a boy who, who had been my best friend in school um, and had not had to do military service because he was gay and gays, if you were known to be gay, you didn't have to do military service. So he, I was very envious of him, and he had decided to do Sanskrit and study ancient India instead of China. And he reported back that it was wonderful, beautiful, very interesting languages, beautiful also, beautiful poetry, beautiful drama, and so on. And he said, well, why don't you switch over to Sanskrit? And that's what I did. So I haven't quite reached Pali yet. I'm afraid it's a rather roundabout journey. <laughs> but I did take up Sanskrit. And then when you did Sanskrit, the subject matter on which you were examined at the end of your course, which was a total of four years, but that includes the classics at the beginning, when you came to those exams, you, Sanskrit was your main language, and that was what you were mainly examined on, but you could choose from a number of subsidiary languages. And there was Buddhism waiting for me in Pali, the language of the early Buddhist scriptures. And it, was fairly, it is fairly closely related to Sanskrit. It was therefore much the easiest option to take, and that's important. So... I decided to do Pali, although, and I, uh, I should say I've never regretted it. It really did become the main interest in my life, uh, the main academic interest at least. But uh, it wasn't a totally happy affair because there was nobody else at the university, senior or junior, who had any interest in Pali. And so I virtually had to teach myself. And I decided at that point that that is not a very good way of learning a serious subject. <laughs> and the things that I didn't know about Pali and early Buddhism would shock anybody now. <laughs> but anyway, I managed to recover. When I took up the study of Pali at Oxford, I was the only person studying it and there was nobody teaching it and the university only recognized it uh, through clenched teeth so to speak they just oh if you want to do a special subject on that you can do it and so on when i left after 28 years on the academic staff we relapsed to exactly the same condition I was appointed to teach Sanskrit and Pali, but it, that meant at least 80%, if not more, Sanskrit in terms of time and effort one had to give and so on. And my leaving would mean I would be replaced by somebody who might well not do Pali at all. And that is, in fact, indeed what happened. My successor, I was by that time professor of Sanskrit, but my successor in that chair was not remotely interested in Pali and wasn't going to teach it. And so I thought, I, I just, I, by now I'd become very fond of Pali and very interested in it. I thought this is really too bad. And I wasn't only interested. I had, I, as I've sort of hinted in my opening preamble, I had two kinds of interests. One was a sort of anthropological interest in religion and how do people come to believe such extraordinary things and do extraordinary things in accordance with their beliefs. So I was pretty interested in anthropology, though I hadn't yet formally studied it at all. And in fact, 
I never came to study it really formally, though I did start reading some of the classic books on anthropology. So on the one hand, I had this kind of interest in the anthropology of religion, which I was happy to turn to studying Buddhism as well as any other religion. And on the other, I had this very thorough training in studying classical languages and um, examining their texts. And so uh, I was sort of half ancient and half modern, so to speak. But oddly enough, the bread and butter lay on the ancient side. <laughs> there happened to be a job there. So I thought, let me uh, try, and uh, and you can do almost anything at Oxford, as long as you don't expect to get any money for it. <laughs> and And so I was allowed to start the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies, which still exists today. This was when I took mandatory re retirement in 2004, when I reached the age of 67. I had to retire, but I thought, well, I want to go on studying. In fact, this will be a good chance to have more time for research and so on. I was a bit naive about that, I must say. I didn't realize how much effort has to go into running even a very small academic institution. But I started the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies, and I have been the academic director of that, which really means the director for more or less everything they do. And that means that I then um, could draw up what I wanted this institution to study. And what I wrote down was our aim was the study of Buddhism in all its traditions, in every form and according to any academic discipline. What the university insisted on, and I was perfectly in agreement with that, was that it always had to be studied in the academic sense. That is, it became registered with the government as an educational charity, not a religious charity. And if a monk, as indeed used to happen, uh, a Buddhist monk from somewhere turned up in Oxford and said, I want to give a talk on uh, you know, Nirvana or something or whatever, I had to sort of politely cross-examine, was this really about faith or about scholarship? Um, what were the criteria for accepting or rejecting a statement and so on? And when he said, um, what seemed to me to reveal quite clearly, and why shouldn't it, that he wanted me to believe in whatever he said about nirvana or whatever. I said, that's very interesting, and I shall come to your talk, but it cannot be given under the auspices of the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies. There is a Buddhist society in the university run by the students, and that's where you should go, and that's where he therefore did go. Um, I was also actually a founding member of Oxford University Student Buddhist Society. And even uh, that was allowed to do more or less what it liked because it didn't represent the university's academic program. And so, in fact, of course, they had things like meditation classes and so on and all kinds of different lectures. And that's continued to this day but it's very easy for anybody to see and understand when they look at our programs that the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies has rather different aims, aims which I'm afraid, of course, don't appeal to as many as would like to sit on a cushion and uh, do some meditation. Um, but it's therefore strictly an academic uh, thing, and, and I should have realized and failed to realize that that would mean that most Buddhists would not want to give any donation to the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies. Very few Buddhists have ever wished to give a donation, I may say, and nearly all the donations we have received have been really quite small. So it's been a great struggle in that respect. And my wife and I have more or less paid for the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies most of the time, and I have never received any kind of salary from it or indeed any recompense. If I earn money by giving a lecture or whatever, 
or indeed get royalties for what I write about Buddhism, almost all of that goes straight to the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies. Otherwise, it would not exist. Mm. And so uh, what role does the does this book play within the the mission of the center? Well, one of the trustees of the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies, a very nice man called Tony Morris, um, is uh, he is a, a practicing Buddhist, and he is also a publisher, and he has published quite a variety of books. And one day he suddenly said he'd been walking in the Welsh mountains, which is where he comes from, and he said he'd had a great inspiration. He was going to study a series called Mud Pie Slices. I didn't, I wasn't struck by the beauty or interest of that <laughs> title. And then he said, and the first volume, Richard, will be by you. And you're a specialist in Pali. And, I, and the Mud Pie Slices will be slices that is, well, in, in only a metaphorical sense, but there will be Buddhism and something, and you're going to do Buddhism and Pali. And I like the man, and I want, I wished him very well, and so on. Um, and I could see that it was going to be very, very difficult for me to refuse him. <laughs> this is a hopelessly honest <laughs> account of how the book came to be written. I didn't leap at it. So in the prologue, you actually talk about how you had some hesitation when you were writing the book. Can you explain why that was and what convinced you to write it in the end? Well, the um, main hesitation was I thought that this whole idea was a bit crazy because he's having future titles in his series will be things like Buddhism and football, Buddhism and the menopause, you name it. (laughs) (laughs) And... I couldn't quite see myself fitting into that series, but he thinks he's very happy with it. Um, and also, I thought it's going to be frightfully difficult. Uh, he wants the book to be published uh, overtly and clearly stating that it's for the general public. Now, Pali is an ancient language, which very, very few people in the world have studied well. The very few people who have, 98% of them live in Sri Lanka or Southeast Asia and don't know English and don't interact with the English-speaking world at all. So the number of people who know any Pali or have even sort of seen a Pali sentence is very small. And I wouldn't have thought that I could, I'm not... I know something about languages, but I'm not a fully trained linguist. If I were even asked to write a book about Latin for the general public, I would think that was a frightfully difficult thing to do. How do you make it interesting? And so I thought, well, I can but set off and see what comes out of it. (laughs) And I wrote this book, as I've written all my books, starting off on page one, I give all my students this advice, which I think may be very bad advice for many people, but it's the opposite of what they're usually told are told to do. I tell them not to make a plan of what they're going to say in Chapter 1, Chapter 2, Chapter 3, Chapter 4, and then reach the conclusion in, shall we say, Chapter 7, and so on, and write out a wonderful schema for the whole thing before they start. I do exactly the opposite and recommend that people do exactly the opposite. I start on page one, and what comes on page two is the result or the, pre- the prerequisite for what's on page two is what I've written on page one. That's what happened to come out, and now I've got to find the connection, how to go on. So that's actually how I wrote this book. And I'm not sure that it's worked out entirely well. Because it was only when I got to, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when I, it's when I got to chapter four, and I thought um, there would be four chapters, mainly because Tony Morris had told me that he wanted about uh, sort of 12 to 15,000 words. So I had a word limit. 
And when I, it was only when I got to chapter four that I suddenly started realizing that I was onto something very interesting. And that was, I had discovered, I think, that uh, Pali was the language of the Buddha, and it followed partly from things that I'd written earlier. Mm. The book doesn't quite give the game away that this is why it happened, because when I gave it to Tony Morris, he was very complimentary about it. But it started with what is now chapter one, which is called Pali in History. And he said, look, the general public who read this book will want to know, just as you have asked, um, how did you get into Pali? Why are you interested in it? Something personal you've got to write. Mm -hmm. And I groaned and I said, but Pali is much more interesting than I am, which I sincerely believe. <laughs> and he said, never mind, you've got to write something about how you got into it. And that's why there's a prologue called Discovering Pali. I wrote every word of it. But the credit for its being there must go entirely to Tony Morris, who forced me into it. <laughs> so um, that, that's sort of separate, you see. And the real book is chapters one to four. <laughs> and chapter four is the really interesting stuff. Now, I think that's unfortunate because it means if you're going to get to chapter four, of course, you've got really to read chapters one, two, and three, which are less interesting. <laughs> but you need the knowledge you're given in chapters one, two, and three to understand what I'm talking about in chapter four. It did pass through my mind to sort of scrap what I'd got, turn the whole book round, and start with the discoveries in chapter four. But then I realized I didn't entertain that idea for many minutes because I realized it couldn't be done because chapter four depended on quite a lot of factual knowledge, which the reader has to be given first. And after all, it's a fairly slim book. So anybody who really is interested in the subject will probably manage to get through without giving up, given that it's only got 100 pages. The one thing I actually really did appreciate, appreciate about the book was uh, how you introduced information about the language, uh, which is something that many learners of Pali or even those who might have uh, just basic familiarity with it don't receive. I think that was very enlightening. Um, so let's talk about the, the language itself. What are the origins of the Pali language and what type of language is it? Ah. Uh. Um, the origins, in a sense, as I've written in several places in several different contexts, um, there are several different kinds of answers to this question. But if, uh, a comparative philologist who looks at what are generally recognized as the main languages in the world today and says, how are they related, has a very simple answer. The All the oldest uh, evidence in India is from this language Sanskrit, which um, is fascinating in many ways. And one of them is that we can be quite sure that Sanskrit existed for many centuries before writing came to India and things were written down in Sanskrit. It had a very long period as an oral language. And it's still going today. And it's a language on the internet and used for modern kinds of communications. And it's so it's really probably the most, um, how should we put, uh, resilient, the most surviving language which exists anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And it has a huge vocabulary and a, a very elaborate grammar, too. Um, and it's impossible to do, I think, for Sanskrit what I have done for Pali because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Pali can very simply be said to be a highly simplified form of Sanskrit. But um, what really does one mean like that? Well, if you know any Italian and any in Latin, you can call Italian a simplified form of Latin. And uh, in the case of Pali and Sanskrit, well, Pali comes from, has much the same relationship to Sanskrit as Italian, or indeed French or Spanish, has to Latin. As the centuries go by, people simplify a lot. They use rather fewer 
phonetic distinctions. There are so fewer letters in the alphabet. It's simplified at the phonetic level. Much more important, it's very much simplified at the grammatical level. Um, there are fewer different tenses and different ways of uh, grammatical ways of teaching nouns and so on. And also, to some extent, it's simpler at the level of discourse of syntax of how sentences are made. They can be made rather like Sanskrit, very like Sanskrit sentences. But as the earliest literature that we have, which is the Pali Canon, um, is largely about spoken uh, Pali, uh, it reproduces, or it says it reproduces, and I believe it, um, what the Buddha and his disciples and some of his uh, opponents and people we had discussions with, what they were saying, well, despite what I'm doing at this moment, on the whole, spoken language uses fairly short sentences and not such complicated constructions. So Pali is indeed, it has its own complications and um, to teach Pali just by saying it's a simplified form of Sanskrit, which I may say is what is often done in Western universities, is not, I think, very satisfactory because Pali goes off on its own here and there and is, it's misleading to, say, to make that great simplification. But that's often the case, isn't it? It's helpful to somebody beginning a subject to be given massive simplifications so they get an idea of what kind of thing am I trying to learn here. But then you have to turn around and say, well, I fooled you. It's not really that simple. And at what point did the language start to be written down? Because you said at first that uh, this was mostly an oral tradition that these texts were carried on. And at what point did the ancient Buddhists start to put uh, pen to palm leaf, so to speak? Well, um, the languages we're talking about and the writing we're talking about, talking about is not terribly old in India by world standards. There was no writing at the time of the Buddha. And we know that for a couple of hundred years, there was no writing in India. And um, the oldest body of writing is inscriptions almost all on stone, on rocks or stone pillars, by the Emperor Asoka in the middle of the 3rd century BC. That's around 250 BC and for the next 20 years or so. So Asoka left these world-famous inscriptions in which he talks largely about how he was converted to Buddhism and the things that he's learned from Buddhism, which he wants to promulgate to all his people, mm. largely about ethics. So and that's, as I say, it's the second half of the third century BC. There's a lot of argument around the edges with, by scholars because there are a few inscriptions which some people say could be older than Ahsoka, but I don't, which are undated, you see. Mm. But they, I don't think it's very likely to be so. Of course, even dating Ahsoka was a problem at first. But luckily, there's one famous inscription, the 13th Major Rock Edict, in which he refers to kings who ruled to the west of him in Egypt, Syria, and so on. And we can identify most of those kings, not always with complete certainty, but never mind. And that gives us the synchronicity that enables us to match up Indian chronology with Western chronology, and it's the foundation for all our knowledge of ancient Indian chronology. So Asoka wrote these inscriptions, and he mentions some Pali texts. Well, he mentions texts from the canon. They're not in exactly the same dialect as Pali, but it's they're not that different. I mean, a bit like Swedish and Norwegian or something. It's not very difficult to get from one to the other. And so the, the, that's when there are bits of writing, but that, none of that is very extensive. And the Buddhist tradition has it that the canon as a whole was first written down in Sri Lanka um, about 30 years before the uh, turn of the Christian era, before B.C. becomes A.D. 
And um, some people don't believe it, and so on. Again, I do. Uh, and that's when it was all written down. You know, the role that writing has played varies so much from civilization to civilization. The real uh, culture, which is a writing culture, is the Chinese. And the role that writing plays in China is completely different, unimaginable almost, unless we have studied it, completely different in China from what it is, say, with us. Because those Chinese things are really true, really exist or whatever, once they're written down. <laughs> and not till then. They believe in writing totally. And uh, that's not the way it is in India and not in Buddhism on the whole. So that uh, when I was doing my field work in Sri Lanka, I discovered that um, copies of the entire a Buddhist canon, uh, the, uh, that is the Theravada Buddhist canon, the form, the form of Buddhism they espouse, which are in Pali, which had usually been donated to them by pious followers and had usually come from the office I was in charge of then when I was president of the Pali Tech Society. They were proudly displayed in the main reception room um, behind a glass-fronted bookcase and I soon learned that it was not wise to ask if you could look at the books in the sense of take them out and go through the pages because they started getting rather embarrassed and they said, uh, uh, I'm afraid we've lost the key. <laughs> <laughs> and you practically never, you realize that they never opened these bookcases and never actually read the texts. But their training as monks had been oral and they had learnt large sections of the text by heart. And it's difficult for us to believe, but of course there are cases in history of monks who've learnt the whole canon by heart. Mm. But the point that I'm trying to make rather is that if a, a Buddhist monk or pious follow, lay follower wants to know what's in the canon, they don't usually look at a book. Nowadays, of course, it's so easy you can look on the Internet, and some people will do that. We're living in a different sort of age once we have the computer and the Internet. But uh, what they always do is they refer to their memory or somebody else's memory of what the text says. And it still was, when I went there uh, for my first field work in 1959, um, it still was actually more, no, sorry, I went in 64 first, but in 1964, it was still pretty much an oral culture as far as the religion went. Mm. Everything was done orally. And now in the written form of the Pali language, uh, I think most people who have come across a couple of words or sentences in the past might be used to seeing it in the Latin script. Uh, but this obviously wasn't the case until rather recently. Uh, and which scripts or uh, and which types of writing was the Pali language recorded up until now? <coughs> yes, you're quite right. It's very important to understand that Pali is not a script. There is no such thing as Pali script. Uh, scripts sort of operate quite independently of languages. Um, the language that we speak is written in the basically in Italian script, the Roman or Latin script, and lots of other languages are too. But of course, there are other ways in which you can write it down. You can do it in a Cyrillic script or an Arabic script or whatever. And so Pali has always been written, can I say simply, in the local script. So in Cambodia, it will be in a Cambodian script, in um, Thailand, in Thai, in Sri Lanka, in Singhala script, in Burma, in Burmese script, and in the West, we put it into Latin script, and we tend to win out. I'm speaking, as, as I say, as the former head of the Pali Text Society, which subsists by printing and distributing books of Pali in the Latin script, as well as their translations. Um, we win out because such a large part of the world 
nowadays uses the Latin script. The script is it's not really important. Okay. Um, of course, with the script, there go various conventions, such as the use of punctuation. And Indian manuscripts are a little difficult for us at first to get used to, because not only do they not mark the beginnings and ends of sentences, um, although they started take, taking that up, shall we say, in the 18th and 19th centuries mainly, they don't even um, make spaces between words. So that makes it a little dip more difficult to read. Now, turning back to the language itself, um, Pali, of course, obviously has uh, very large differences between uh, English and, and other Western European languages. Could you describe some of the linguistic features that an English speaker would find familiar and which they would find foreign? Well, firstly, let's take the different levels of language. I mean, the phonetic level. In Pali, you have some of the commonest sounds or consonants have aspirated and non-aspirated forms. So, for instance, if you say, that's a T, and you say, and it's an unaspirated T. If you say, that's an aspirated T. Now, uh, if we take, or the same would go for P, for instance, or P. And those are different letters in Pali. In English, we actually tend to say we have a P at the beginning of a word before a vowel. We say something like pit or pot. And that's kind of halfway between the aspirate and the non-aspirate. We don't make the difference. So they, there you've got a case where um, you have two letters which... Uh, an English person wouldn't immediately pick up that they were different if they just if you just heard the language spoken, but they are two entirely different letters. Similarly, with vowels, you have a short vowel and a long vowel. U and U are two different letters, and these differences are always marked in whatever script you use. Since in our script we don't actually have a difference between a short U and a long U. What we do is we put a mark over a long U, a bar, technically called a macron. So if you write just the letter U, that's a short U. If you're writing Pali, as in Buddha, if you use a long, uh, want a long U, you have to put a bar over it. So we have these diacritics. Some English people make a lot of fuss about that, but of course German and French, and so French, uh, there they tend to call them accents, though they aren't all called accents. Uh, in the, the case of U in German, you have U with two dots on, that's called an umlaut, and you have the difference between U and U. Um, so the, these kind of things are common across practically all languages. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, Oh, and as for the uh, the aspiration, well, we just uh, we can write th too, but of course in, in English that makes the sound f, uh, and th- that sound doesn't exist in Pali, so there's no danger of confusion. As for the uh, well, it's an inflecting language. The grammar is the big stumbling block for beginners until you get used to it. So. If I, we have it only in the pronouns, really. So, you, um, if I can say, I see you, and you see me, and I is the subject used when it's a subject, and me is the object. But of course, that's just one example from a vast range of possibilities, which doesn't apply just to pronouns, but to all nouns and adjectives, and so on. And so on. There, there are variations of the endings of words if in, with verbs, whether it's the first person, I, the second person, you, or the third person, he, she, or it. And there's variation between the singular and the plural. And then, well, the, the structures uh, to make longer sentences, to run words together, um, are also rather different, although in Pali they're pretty simple compared to English, I would say. 
Um, it's sufficiently simple in Pali for it to be possible, as I do in Chapter 2, to um, describe, give an adequate description in about 10 pages. So that shows you it's pretty simple. All right. Uh, now, in the next chapter on the style of Pali prose, uh, you actually say, quote, the Pali Canon is one of the world's greatest documents of oral literature, and the greatest single factor in determining its style must have been that orality. In yes. what ways can we see the oral transmission reflected in the style of polyprose? The repetition, above all. The fact that we say, um, we say, um, I'll, I'll go to the I'll go to the corner shop to get some bread. I'll go to the corner shop to get sorry. We say I'll go to the corner shop to get some bread, butter, milk, cheese, and eggs. We're bound, we bound. That's how we put it. The Pali Canon will tend to say I'll go to the corner shop to get some bread. I'll go to get some butter. I'll go to get some cheese. I'll go to get some eggs. Like that. There's a great deal of redundant repetition. Now, why do you have that? I think the answer is pretty obvious. You're trying to memorize these texts. So if you just have a list of objects, there's nothing really to hang it on to, is there? Um, and if you forget one, you tend to, uh, it, it goes. It's, it, 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 there's no obvious way of saying, oh dear, I've forgotten one. Or well, one way to make sure that you've got it is to do this repetition. Another way is to give numbered lists, and Buddhism, early Buddhism is full of numbered lists. So it's as if we were to say, uh, to give a rather silly example, but not very far from what actually happens in Pali, um, there are five emotions, there are four feelings, or what, etc. It, what matters is that you know that five, four, uh, six of this and two of that, and so you know when you've forgotten something or you've got, oh, I've got too long a list. Something mustn't, must be there which I've put in and shouldn't be there. So they, they use these numbers too. Um, another way of uh, ensuring, or you can never ensure, but getting close to ensuring that you remember the thing correctly is verse, where you've got a meter or, you know, rules about, long and short syllables, which is what, mainly what you get in Pali. Again, you, you can say, um, well, there should be five long syllables in this line. The version that I've remembered only has four long syllables. I must have forgotten something there, yeah. <laughs> which has another long syllable. I put in a shorter word for a longer one or something like that. So th those are features um, which help memorization and as I mentioned somewhere in the book we're discovering through actual experiments live experiments in India even today not among Pali scholars alas because they don't have many in India now but Sanskrit scholars have the most astounding um, way of uh, memorizing, not just the way of memorizing, but they can remember enormous quantities. And this has now been, you know, we've, we have all the recording facilities, etc., etc. And then we can eas easily show nowadays neurological differences in the brain when you have, have got a huge capacity to memorize. And it's not just quantity. One of the things I find most interesting and most important for the subject I'm studying is that they have they can do this as some musicians can do it with music. They hear a thing once, a sentence, and can repeat it perfectly. And there are people who have this capacity almost complete. And what that gives us an answer to when the Buddha spoke and preached, and there was no writing and, of course, no recording apparatus of any kind, and people said, oh, the Buddha on such and such an occasion sat down under a banyan tree and spoke and said, monks, I'm going to teach you about such and such. 
how do we how did anybody know is this just a sort of fanciful reconstruction if anybody asked the question before they were thought to be rather nutty and that you couldn't possibly answer such a question but now i think we can see that there is a fairly straightforward answer yes there were people present who had trained their memories so that they could probably for only a fairly short period after he'd done it, possibly not, possibly for a longer period, they could say exactly what the Buddha had said. And of course, they valued what he said so much that when there was one monk or nun or other person there who said, he said, blah, 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 then the other people would say, let me say it again, say it again. I want to remember it too. And they passed it on in this way orally in a way that I'm afraid we would be incapable of doing. Mm-hmm. And so you uh, believe that this is part of the evidence uh, that makes the argument plausible that the Pali Canon records the words of the Buddha as conveyed by Ananda at the first Buddhist council. Is that correct? Oh, well, Ananda is only credited with a part, though a very large part of the Buddhist canon. Upali is credited with the first part, the monastic regulations and so on. But yes, um, when the Buddha died, the the monks assembled. The texts tend to say there were 500, but that's a conventional number which occurs all over the place and just means a very large number. Sorry, we couldn't count. We couldn't count it. Um, But the monks assembled and they decided in a systematic way um, they had somebody in the chair, so to speak, who said, now tell us what he said next, and where did he say this, and when did he say this, and so on. And somebody got up and recited it, and then other people, it must have already taken place sort of all over the place, that monks, after all, monks uh, were supposed not to live alone. Occasionally they did, but they were, it was, the Sangha means a community, and they're, they're a community, the monks and similarly the nuns, and they must have done this sort of thing which was uh, imitated in the First Council many, many times during the Buddha's long lifetime. There is one story which is helpful of a young monk turning up at the place where the Buddha is staying and he says, oh, I've studied your work. <laughs> the Buddha said, really? Uh, re- recite something to me. And he recites, it tells us the text that he recites. And it's a set of religious poems. And the Buddha says, very good, you got it all right. Well, I think that that is probably a true story. You go on to further argue that the Buddha is responsible for the language itself. Can you yes, explain what you I mean by the that? the most interesting part of the book. That's in chapter four. And I think that that is really, really, really interesting. The funny thing is that I think this is the one great discovery I've made. You go to any Buddhist now in Sri Lanka and so on, and you say, hey, you know, this is actually what the, exactly what the Buddha said. The words, it's not just that they mean the same or something. They're in, they're in exactly the same form. And he just looks at you pityingly and says, but I always knew that. Because for them... It's an act of faith, and they do believe the Pali Canon is known as Buddha Vachana, the words of the Buddha, and they do take that very literally. And, of course, no Westerner or Western scholar has taken it literally. They think it's a very, very um, simplified sort of uh, myth that the Buddhists tell. But then, of course, the scholars all argue fantastically with great uh, vehemence against each other and say, but what dialect did he actually speak? And my answer is a mixed dialect. And you see, I didn't answer your question about what dialect was Pali because my answer has been is that it isn't any one dialect. There are features in Pali which connected with far, quite far east in uh, what would be modern-day Bihar, perhaps even the edges of, of Bengal, and other parts 
which connected, I mean, other features, not parts, but features of the language, of the phonetics, which connected much further, uh, sort of halfway to Delhi, much further north and west. It's a sort of on the northwest to southeast axis. And we know that the Buddha spent his life, or the, after enlightenment, that's about 45 years, uh, walking up and down in this area and preaching. But we also know, because it's the same to this day, that actually the language changes slightly from every village, village to village to village. The people who never move, the farmers who are there all their lives and maybe have never traveled more than five miles away from their own home, have their own dialect, which is quite like the one next door, or at least I should say it's a little like the one to the north, it's a little like the one to the south, but not in the same respect, and so on. They're all speaking dialects which are closely related, but they're not exactly the same. And the Buddha has to communicate with these people. He has to understand what they say to him, and he has to say something to them which they will understand. And it suddenly struck me, and it's funny that it hasn't struck a great many people, that Pali is very odd, because very common words like you and me and so on have so many different forms in Pali. Mm. And I think around to the languages we all know, English, French, German, etc., we don't have, need to have a lot of different words for I and you, do we? Or different forms. But... I think this is because, you know, it's an amalgam, and he's speaking exactly as the locals are speaking. It is not quite the same as they speak 10, 10 miles down the road. Though obviously, it's pretty similar. Is that clear? I believe it's so, yes. And then you said that this, uh, as you said, was a bit of a lingua franca that the Buddha used uh, when he was preaching, or was this a language that he spoke in... Uh, when he was not preaching as well in his everyday life? Um, I, I think that's what he spoke all the, all the time because, you see, also he, he acquired disciples here, there, and everywhere, and they would have had slightly different dialects. But they, these people then passed their entire lives together, day in, day out, went through various experiences together and so on. And I think then the thing sort of gels and an important part of my theory or discovery is about this about the argo that they become they are a kind of closed community the sangha they're always very keen to have new recruits and they obviously they lose some people along the way but they they're a fixed body of men and women who move around and have the same things to talk about what the Buddha says they should do, what the Buddha says they would be well advised to think, and so on, how the Buddha says they should be, behave. And they say, uh, they use this mixed dialect, and it becomes characteristic of them. It can't be, again, the same argument repeated, it can't be totally different from what local people speak, and then otherwise nobody's going to understand. But it's distinctive mm. um, it's as their uh, tradition. And you see, the ca we know that these texts survived in several different forms um, in different parts of, Indi of ancient India. Most of these, this evidence is lost, but not all of it. And we know that this was so. And uh, for instance... The most important thing we know in this respect is that the uh, the Pali Canon was somehow transmitted to Sri Lanka, which is quite a long way away. Obviously, the, the local language in Sri Lanka, although it had the same origin ultimately from Sanskrit, but it obviously wasn't very close to what was spoken up in Bihar in northern India, where the Buddha... Uh, sort of the center where the Buddha spent his life. But if a group of monks went down, I think they could easily connect through this argo with the local language. And that's what became then uh, preserved in Sri Lanka, despite the fact that for them, 
they were learning something rather different, but still not so different as to make it impossible. We can think of lots of analogies if we look at modern European languages, some which are, of which are very close to each other and some a bit further but still mutually intelligible, like, so we say, Czech and Polish, pretty different, but still with a little effort and goodwill they can understand each other, and so on. So these degrees of difference um, vary a, a lot, and that's very important for understanding the actual mm -hmm. linguistic situation, not just in ancient India, but as a colleague of mine, Imre Banga, who's an expert on North Indian languages of more recent times, as he says, it's much the same today. Mm. And then one of the aspects of the book that I found absolutely fascinating was how you explained the relationship between the Pali language and Buddhism and how the Pali language embodies the essence of the Buddha's teaching and Buddhism itself. Could you yes. uh, talk about that a little bit, please? Well, <coughs> we have evidence in the canon of the Buddha saying, um, in, he says it in several different ways, in several different places, and he says, don't cling to my words. Firstly, he says, you've got a word for pot in this village, which is so-and-so, and then the pot, uh, such a pot in the next village, as I happen to know, is called something different, but it's the same pot. And it doesn't really matter at all which word you use, as long as you understand you're talking about pots. But it's, this is the same is true at a much more important level. And things can be put in different ways. And to understand what I say is not at all the same thing as understanding the exact words that I use. And it's really silly to um, get into arguments about which are the right words. Because ultimately... And this is quite subtle, and you, it's a bit, the real argument is several pages long, and I can't give it all now. But ultimately, language isn't reality anyway. Language is our way of representing reality to ourselves and other people. So the language, not just in terms of phonetics and so on, but even conceptually, it doesn't ever exactly capture reality. It's a pointer towards things, um, it's, it excludes a lot of things but, uh, which are quite different, but it doesn't exclude some things which are very similar. So he's got this philosophy of language that it doesn't actually capture reality. And that's very important in ancient India, and that comes out of ancient Indian thought because the Brahmins who spoke Sanskrit claimed that there was an inherent eternal bond between saying the word cow and the animal, the cow. Mm -hmm. And the, animal, the correct word for the animal was cow, and if you said vash in French or something, <laughs> well, that was very inferior, and you were much further away from reality. And the Buddha was completely in disagreement with that and argued against it. Mm. So... Language is not reality, but it's a communication system. And it can't be com perfect, but it's a lot better than nothing. As a person who is very um, enthusiastic about spreading the teaching of Pali, I'd like to ask you, do you think the future of learning Pali is a bright one? Uh, I'm afraid I don't. Um, I think... Well, firstly, I think that on the whole, largely because of the Internet and the use of English being so useful for everybody, the study of languages other than English is in catastrophic decline. I mean, if I look at the school system in this country, it was n not very bright when I was a child. The, uh, I mean, the amount of foreign language that you learned and the standard, which was appalling on the whole, of how you learnt. It was very, very depressing, and it's just got worse and worse, and fewer and fewer school children actually study a foreign language, 
and with foreign languages, of course, uh, include the ancient languages for us, Latin and Greek are the crucial ones. So language study is really on a very long, steep slide. As for Pali, I've mentioned that there are people in Southeast Asia and so on who actually uh, do still study Pali to a high standard in a traditional way, but those people hardly ever know English, and there's no communication with them, really. They're not interested in what we think. I gave a nice example when I said that if I told them I've discovered that the words written down in the Pali Canon are exactly what the Buddha said, they would look pityingly at me and say, we've all, always known that. Uh, they don't have any feeling for the kind of uh, evidence that we want to prove something. So I don't have much hope, really, of combining with them. And also, of course, terrible, terrible things are being done by Theravada Buddhist monks and so on, especially in Burma to the Rohingyas, but not so good. it's not so good in Sri Lanka in uh, what, what they've been doing to the Tamils, though they had a lot of excuse, um, unlike the Burmese, uh, and not so good in Thailand and so on. So the heartland of Theravada Buddhism, where the language Pali is the, the sacred and liturgical language, is quite small in world, ter world terms and it's not acquitting itself very well. So I think that modern people who incline towards Buddhism and want to learn about Buddhism are much more likely either to go to the Tibetans, who have a greater romantic glamour to them, or to the Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans, or none of whom know Pali, and indeed, most of whom are just as ignorant about Pali as are other people in our own country. So I'm not very optimistic. Well, let's do what we can with my little book. <laughs> and Richard, what's next for you? What next? My goodness. <laughs> well, um, I'm working and have been for some time with a friend and colleague who is a sociologist of Buddhism. I'm giving vent to my other intellectual interest, and we're doing research on and writing books, articles, and I hope a book on contemporary Taiwanese Buddhism and how it relates to Chinese. It is, of course, a form of Chinese Buddhism, but how it relates to the older forms of Chinese Buddhism and that sort of thing. So I'm still very interested in the sociology of religion, but I'm 81, and I don't work as many hours a day as I used to, and I don't get around to libraries as easily as I used to. So the answer to what's next for you might be the same as for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found this book absolutely fascinating. I think it was a, a, a very interesting introduction uh, to the language itself uh, that we often don't get to see as learners of the language. And I just want to thank you again for appearing on the show today and uh, telling us a little bit about your book, Buddhism and Pali. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other new books and Buddhist studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission by Delicieuse Musique and is taken from the song Small Flowered by Para Forcuva.